I invite you to take your Bibles and find Philippians, find chapter 2. We'll get there in a moment. Perhaps an interesting historical account that will set the runway for how we're going to view and see our text this morning. After the sinking of the Titanic, the White Star office in Liverpool, England, was the place where the families would go to find out the status of their loved ones who were on board. Were they found or were they missing? Had they survived? And so in those immediate days, there'd be crowds gathered around the entrance of the White Star office. Interestingly, on each side of the door of the White Star office, there were two billboards. They each had a hook. And apparently, from what history tells us, that when the names of the survivors would come in, they would write the name on a piece of cardboard and they would take it outside the entrance and hold it up. That'd be a chilling moment if you're waiting to see what's become of your loved one. And then they would place that piece of cardboard either on the left or right. One side said, known to be saved. The other side said, known to be lost. So after holding the cardboard sign, then they would place it on one side or the other. It'd be chilling. And the crowd was no doubt silent and still every time a name was brought forward. As I read that story again in Moody Adams' book, The Titanic's Last Hero, I was reminded that that's exactly the mindset of people like Epaphroditus. That's the mindset of many of you who know there really are only two types of people in this world. Those who are saved and those who are lost. And because that impacts you, you live in a selfless fashion and you live like Epaphroditus in a risky fashion. And this morning, I want us to look more at this man who risked his life coming close to death for the work of Christ. In fact, did you know Epaphroditus is only mentioned twice in the Bible? They're both in Philippians. One's in chapter 2 where he's mentioned for the first time, and then the other one's Philippians 4. So you're in Philippians 2, right? We're going to take a look at some things about him that will tell us more about the man because last week we looked more at the mission, didn't we? But I want to take a closer look at the actual individual himself. I want to do that in the following ways. I want us to examine just briefly the five labels he's given in verse 25. After doing that, I want to kind of back out a bit and see the one reason that he is inserted into chapter 2 as an example of selflessness, specifically risky selflessness. And then... As a way to apply both of those things, I want to take some questions from you guys. So that's what's ahead. What do you say we get started and dive into Philippians 2, 25? And let's see more about the man Epaphroditus, can we? Let's see the verse, first of all, Philippians 2, 25. Here's what the Bible would say to us. Of course, his story is 25 to 30. I want us to take just this verse today and see how Paul describes Epaphroditus. In fact, could you read this verse out loud with me? Philippians 2.25, together. But I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. 
So five labels or five titles that Paul gives Epaphroditus, giving us insight into who he is and more about kind of how he's wired. And, and you'll notice that these five labels really fit, I believe, into two categories. And so to, to kind of understand this, somewhere in your journal, uh, maybe on a piece of paper, I would draw a five-column, three-row chart. If you're not a chart person, you can just write some of this information by each title in your journal or your Bible. I found this to be helpful to kind of understand more about what's happening. I think the first three are quite relational, the first three labels. The last two are, are more official. So brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, they speak to relationship. Messenger and minister speak to responsibility. Again, relational, official. We're going to walk through these. I'll give you a word under each of these as well that kind of describes it. Just briefly, notice that when Paul calls him brother, he's speaking here with affection. This is a family word. And it's not just a word uh, that we often use in a physical family. Paul here is using this in a spiritual fashion. He's saying that Paul, uh, Epaphroditus and I are in the same spiritual family. He's a believer in Christ. He's a spiritual kin. And this indicates love and closeness. It's the very first word he mentions. And so he's starting off where we all should start off, that beyond what we do, we are something. We are related spiritually. The same heavenly Father because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been born again into God's family. So it makes us brothers and sisters. He then calls him a co-worker. I think of the word associate. Someone who works alongside of. And in this case, I think he's saying Epaphroditus is, is within that kind of inner circle. I'd remind you that, that Epaphroditus was with Paul in his, some of his most crucial moments. He spent probably months getting to him, may have spent additional weeks there with him. And so he was a co-worker. I, I find this to be a very intriguing title because technically, Paul could have used his authority to just simply call him a worker. Like, don't forget who's boss, Epaphroditus. I'm a big A apostle. I've got authority. He could have pulled like a 1 Corinthians 9 on him where Paul really goes to bat for his rights as an apostle with his authority, and yet he says, I, I'm not going to use that as a way to get my way. Here, he does a great thing. He says, you know what? In one sense, uh, Epaphroditus, we're side by side. I love that about Paul. Just a real servant leadership mindset and not trying to, you know, beat someone up with titles or establish his, his uh, you know, authority through position. He's, you can tell he's relational. He's saying, man, we're shoulder to shoulder as co-workers. By the way, Paul used this word often to, just, to describe those in the churches that he would write to or visit. Co-workers in the gospel. He then says he's a fellow soldier. I think of the word action here. And specifically action that's in regards to opposition. I mean, in Paul's mind is warfare. And I think if you were to take these first three titles, you could almost see them as a narrowing in, uh, a funneling, so to speak, in regards to what Epaphroditus did. He's a brother 
who was in the circle of Paul's associates, but this one especially was an associate, a co-worker when things were difficult. Remember, he visited Paul when Paul was under house arrest. And so he was the one who was with Paul in those days when he was closely guarded by, by Roman soldiers, very limited in what he could do. This was the one who was with Paul in the battle, who was with Paul in his times of suffering. Just picture in your mind those trenches in either of our world wars. And often you've seen movies where there's comrades serving together and it's dirty and they're hungry and they're wet and they've been days and, and, and you think, man, who could survive in that week after week? Those are soldiers. They're in the middle of difficulty and warfare, but they're together. They're fellow soldiers. Paul is thinking of this type of picture, a fellow soldier, someone who's actively helping him in the battle. He next goes to more of an official label when he calls him an apostle um, or uh, a messenger. You say, Todd, why did you substitute the word apostle there for messenger? Because in the most literal sense, that's what this word is in the New Testament. It's the word apostolos. So he is a little a apostle. Now understand this, in the New Testament, there are big A, capital A, foundation-laying apostles. Ephesians 2 talks up about these. And they, were, they had the authority of Christ and there were requirements. There's the 12 and then, of course, Paul as the apostles, big A apostles. And those aren't available or existent today. But the Bible also speaks of little A apostles, people who were sent by churches as messengers to other churches or partners. And these are used, uh, this word's used for other people besides Epaphroditus. Uh, they're, they're not saying they have the same authority. They're not saying they're the big A. They're just simply saying they're a sent one. And so Paul uses this word in that sense to discuss and describe Epaphroditus. And I remind you, he was from Philippi. So Epaphroditus' home church was the Philippian church. Acts 16 describes its beginning. He was probably saved in those first few years and then grew and then was sent out by the Philippian church to go serve the needs of Paul. He was the Philippian church's messenger in an official sense. He was there, I'm going to use this word correctly, little a, he was their apostle. He was their sent one. And what was he sent to do? That's what the last title describes for us. He was sent to minister to Paul. Now, the word here is the word for serve, but it's not the word that we typically think of, which you may be thinking, I guess it's probably the word deacon. Most of us in the church know that deacon is this word for servant. This is not the word deacon. This is the word we, from where we probably get laity. It simply means a, a person who served in a very clerical kind of administrative duty, doing functions and carrying out responsibilities on behalf of another, often used of a government official or an employee or, or someone, a civic servant. This is that word. And so Epaphroditus saw his responsibility as being sent by the Philippian church and his job was to come to the aid of Paul and serve him in this way. And so history does record a few things and we can gather this kind of uh, hypothesis that he was probably at times chained to Paul other times he wasn't. He may have 
ran errands. He may have helped him write. He may have uh, uh, delivered messages on his behalf, but he was sent to care for the needs of Paul. Of course, in that journey, he became deathly ill and almost didn't make the journey, and yet God healed him, I believe. He was able to finish the mission. He was the ambassador from Philippi sent to serve the needs of their partner, Paul. Now watch this. If you were Paul and you're, the church you founded did that for you, wouldn't you feel grateful and appreciative? And wouldn't you have a heightened sense of love for them? Of course you would. This is why we believe Paul, when he writes about the Philippian church, you're my joy and crown, how I long for you. This is one of the reasons I think he had a very deep affection for the Philippian church as a partner. So those are the five labels, um, words that kind of describe it, the categories. But if you look at that, I just want you to notice one main thing that kind of comes from that. Epaphroditus really was, was what we'd call a, 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 um, a facilitator. He was a, a link, a connector between two things. I draw this from two important pronouns in the text. Keep your nose in the text with me. Notice that before the first three labels, he's referred to as my. You see that? My brother. And it follows he's my co-worker, my fellow soldier. But in the last two, what's the pronoun? Your. Indicating to me that Epaphroditus saw his role, he saw his selfless task as this, connecting the Philippian church and Paul. In other words, he wasn't a franchise player looking for the most attention. He was the facilitator making sure the partner and the church had their needs met. He'd be willing to be one in the shadows, not on the front of the stage. His concern was that the church and the partner have their needs met. This is another way to see selflessness. Remember, Timothy was strategic. We saw last week Epaphroditus was risky. I believe that selfless people have a unique way of just facilitating and linking and connecting those who have needs and those who can meet needs and then kind of getting out of the way. One example of this is Sheila Miguez. She's connected a lot of our small groups to ministries in Des Moines who have needs. This summer it's called Share Joy Des Moines and she's connected many of your groups with either Freedom for Youth, uh, Friendship Center, some group, a group went down there just Thursday and I heard from one of them yesterday in which he told me, he said, you know, we should do more of that. He says, those are moments when you realize, wow, serving others in these arenas is good for our group. It's good for ourselves. And to see things you don't normally see. The Agape Pregnancy Resource Center, we're partnering with them. Sheila's putting this together and Sheila's willing to kind of back out of the way, not be the prime player, but to help our small groups and then ministries connect. A selfless act of being a facilitator, not a franchise player. And this is what we know about Epaphroditus. And it's verified by the second time he's mentioned in Scripture. Remember, this is the first time he's mentioned. Notice the second time he's mentioned. It's Philippians 4.18. In fact, it's on the screen. Will you read this with me as well? Here's the second time he's mentioned. Notice 
how he's viewed as a connector, as a link, as a facilitator. Read with me. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Notice, prior to the name Epaphroditus, you see the word, the pronoun I mentioned three times. Then you see Epaphroditus' name. Then you see the word you. Isn't that interesting? Even in the verbal writing of the text under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, translated to English, we find Epaphroditus as a link between Paul and the church. So just remember this, church, as we think about Epaphroditus, selfless, selflessness often means we're willing to take a connector's role, a facilitator's role. We're willing to be a link to help meet the needs of others. So if you've seen three aspects of selflessness through at least these last two examples, selflessness means we're strategic. It means we're willing to risk it. And it means we're willing to link others, facilitate them together. Now, with those five labels and kind of that general observation kind of circling your mind, let me kind of back up a bit. And I want to see what those descriptors really are doing for us in light of the whole chapter. Because the truth is, those labels about Epaphroditus are really just brushstrokes in the larger picture that Paul is painting in the entire chapter. And what is that picture? Well, you're ahead of me, I'm sure you know. It's this, that selflessness matters in the church. Chapter 2 is really just a collection of four examples of selflessness. It begins with Jesus in verse 5, then it goes to Paul himself, and then Timothy and Epaphroditus. Of course, Christ is the supreme and prime essence and example of selflessness, so all of those flow out of him. But from verse 5 to the end of the chapter, it really is a collection of pictures or snapshots of selflessness. Why does this matter? Why is he showing these for us? Because these examples give us uh, um, illustrations of what he's calling for in verses 2 to 4. He's calling for us to think of others' needs before we think of our own. He's calling us to have the same mind, to, to um, consider others before we think of ourselves. He's calling for selflessness. And so as a way to amplify that, as a way to really encourage that, and I think to practically give pictures, he then gives four examples. So that's how Epaphroditus fits into the larger chapter. But the question that should be concerning your mind is, okay, I see how the four pictures are a way to illustrate the main point in verses 2 to 4, but, but why does selflessness matter so much? Here's why. Because it's the way to joy. In fact, I would say it even more specifically, it's the way to joyful partnerships. Because in verse 1 of chapter 2, so I've taken you back now to verse 1. Remember, we're in 25 to 30. I'm back to train all the way up to verse 1. Paul says, says this, make his joy complete by being like-minded, looking to others instead of yourself. So Paul's saying, I'm fighting for your joy. I want you to fight for my joy. 
Joyful partnerships come from selfless actions. And so Paul calls the church to a posture of and a practice of selflessness so that the partnership is joyful. So they're not fighting against each other, but rather fighting for each other. And that only comes through selflessness. And he gives four examples of it following verse 11. So that's the chapter as a whole and how each person fits into it. And so church, I need you to sink your teeth into this. The whole reason for selflessness and all of its illustrations are so that, so that we would experience joyful partnerships, both individually and collectively, which says to me, there's this call for, and there's this repeated equation throughout chapter 2 in which Paul is saying the avenue to joy is selflessness. Which brings me back to something I said on week one, seven weeks ago. I assumed all of you had heard it before, but as I interacted with many of you the following week, most of our church had not even seen this equation. I heard it growing up. I thought it'd be common knowledge. I felt I was repeating something you all knew, but I was quite frankly, stunned how many of us had never even seen this. So I'm going to bring it back to your attention again. Because I think in plain mathematical terms, this is what Paul is saying from Philippians 2.1 all the way to verse 30, that if you want joy, specifically joyful partnerships, you must live in a prioritized, ordered fashion. Jesus first, others next, and then yourself. Let me show it to you in a simple equation. Joy is Jesus plus others plus you. It doesn't mean you're not in the equation, but you're just not first in the equation. Amen? Thus the word selflessness. And often we wonder, why is there a lack of joy in the church? Or why is there a lack of joy in my life? It's because we reverse the equation and we think that joy starts with a why. No, this whole chapter continually, repeatedly drives home this simple equation, this simple truth, that joy, both collectively and individually with our partners, between missionaries and churches, between each other, joy is the result of selflessness, putting others before yourself, thinking of them instead of yourself, meeting needs. And often that means we must be strategic. Often that means we take risk. And often that means we're connecting and facilitating. But it's selflessness that we're pursuing for the sake of others' joy. Now, as we ponder that, think about what that looks like in our life. I want to take a few questions. And see if you have any that you've texted in. Perhaps this is where we can say that the, the text will take on some shoe leather. We'll put what we preach into practice. So we'll see if we have any questions. I think our first one is in from Carlisle. <clears throat> so we'll take that question. Are there any more after this first one? Okay, at this point, there's none. If you have some, get them in in a hurry. We'll see if we can answer them. If not, we'll still get them after the fact, and we'll address them on our Extra Point podcast, Okay. Here's one, came in from our Carlisle campus. How can we discern when it's appropriate to make sacrifices for others 
and when it's necessary to establish healthy boundaries for our own mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. <clears throat> As I read that question, I, I am tempted to think that's what everyone's wondering. You know why I think that? Because that's what I wonder. I have been wondering it for seven weeks in an exaggerated fashion. Like, have you thought this too? Like, like Todd, I'm, I'm all for selflessness, but like... Isn't there a balance? Like, what about my needs? And we ask that not to be selfish. We ask it honestly. Like, the, the, the current term is often self-care. And so we have these thoughts like, at what point do I say, I need a break? Or I need to give a no answer. I mean, those are legitimate questions. I don't think that you're asking those because you're selfish or that you necessarily want your way. But you are wondering, like, wh where is this, where, where's the balance here? So let me provide a few thoughts. I've been trying to stall here for a little bit. <laughs> Does that work for you? My mind is thinking of two things. First of all, the word enable. So as a grandparent and a parent, there are times you say no. I've wondered myself, like, when do I say no to my grandkids and when do I say yes? We, we love to just say, ah, oh, we always say yes. And I know that's kind of the general flavor, like grandparenting, man, just give them what they want. But the truth is, no grandparent lives that way. You shouldn't live that way. You want to help your children. You can't raise their kids, but you can help them raise their kids. And often that means you do kind of side with the parents when they're involved in training and discipline, right? So I thought, like, when is a grandparent is a no better than a yes. And I think the word that I think of when I see this question is, when I'm enabling a negative habit or pattern in the life of someone else, it's not selfish to say we're not going to do that. Now, I will admit to you, there's a lot of color here. This is a massively big topic. It's probably the question we're all wondering. Books have been written about this. I'm just giving you a slice, a sliver of insight. But I think the word enable is helpful to me. If what I'm going to do, though it may appear selfless, enables a negative habit or pattern or causes or, or helps them actually do something harmful or maintain a position where there's not growth... I don't think it's selfish to say, you know, I think I'm going to bypass that situation. Now, how we deliver that is important as well. I think of the book, When Helping Hurts. It's not new, but it's written to churches and pastors and congregants in regards to how they actually support and help their missionaries and help foreign works in cross-cultural places. And often, the dollars we send, you should read the book, they often hurt more than they help. They enable, um, and you'll need to read the book. I won't go into it here. I'm tempted to do, but I won't. Just realize there are times when you think you are helping and actually you may be hurting. So that's not actually selfless, is it? Another word I think of is this, and this is where I'm going to kind of take a different turn. And then since it's the last question, I'll probably just move on from here. But, and I think the question is fantastic. So I'm not picking the question apart except to say this, I think if you're looking, and I'm going to get a ton of email over this, I know, so I'm ready for it. Just If you're thinking that there's a balance in selflessness and that, you know, at some point you have to watch out for your own well-being, 
I don't know if you'll ever find that balance. There are times you need to risk. You need to risk your own status and trust the Lord. Yeah, I said it. Whether it be your physical safety, your financial security, there are times when God will call you to actually think less of yourself and say, I'm not sure how this ends, but God wants me to interact in this way and provide or meet or facilitate. And there are some definite risks, but this is the Lord's will. And so you move that way. I'd remind you that when Paul talked about his own investments in the churches and the weight that he felt and his schedule and the danger and the persecutions, he said this, and I love this passage. This is so counterintuitive to our Christian culture. He said that he's wasting away every day. And he said, though his outward man is perishing, referring to his persecutions, the times he was shipwrecked, the times he starved, all those things that he didn't cause, but they were just part and parcel to his role in God's kingdom. That was included in his call, by the way. The Lord told him clearly, I'll show you how many things you must suffer for my name's sake. And boy, did that happen. And not once did Paul say, you know, I think I need, uh, I need a week off for self-care. Now, please don't misinterpret me. Just know this, that if you think you can enter into selflessness with a completely balanced ledger sheet, I think that's the wrong mentality. I don't know if it works that way. There are times you will feel and experience and know this is out of balance. I'm, I'm expending at this season way more but if it's God's will and his call, though your outward man is perishing, the Bible says this, your inner man can be renewed day by day. God will give you enough grace for the day ahead. Don't quit. So if that sounds anti to what your counselor says or your therapist, I'm not trying to argue with them. I'm just telling you, biblically speaking, there are times you will expend everything and you'll wonder, when's the Philip coming? God will keep his word and he will replenish you and renew you day by day. And I just trust the Lord to care for his sheep. Amen, don't you? So I want to be a little cautious that we're not thinking that self selflessness always looks like a balance sheet to begin. You're probably going to be operating in the debit for a while. But God is faithful. Amen. And so with the right balance, just know, Look at what you may be enabling when you're called to acts of selflessness. If they're enabling a negative or habit or pattern, I, would, I think you've got room to think maybe I should not agree to this or participate or help. And then realize that in times when you are and you can, it may not always balance immediately, but trust the Lord's inner renewal so that you can endure outward wasting away. There are no more questions, at least at this service. Here's what I want to do. With all that kind of, you know, flying around the airport of your mind, this week, these characters, the seven weeks, I want us to do the most important thing we can do. We did this once before. I want to do it again this week. And I want to 
call us to an extended time of prayer in which, you, in which we ask God for increased selflessness. I remind you, church, with all the humility I can muster, you cannot do this on your own. Trust me, like many of you, I know. You'll wear out. It'll last a day or a week. You do not have the capacity as a naturally selfish human whose first instinct is survival. You do not have the natural capacity to live selflessly long-term without Jesus Christ as the central fuel in your life. Remember, all the examples flow out of Christ's example. And so I want to call us as a church to our first and best action. Can we seek the Lord? Can we take a vertical posture first? And here's what's going to happen. Probably in your mind, you'll think of the three, four, five major situations and areas and relationships where your selflessness is called for right now. So across the room, there'll be all kinds of different scenarios. In our Carlisle campus, there'll be all kinds of different scenarios. And the Holy Spirit will work with you. He'll peel back the layers of your chest cavity and he'll begin to press and point out. He'll bring conviction and affirmation. And in this time of extended prayer, God will lead you and direct you and empower you to address, to take the risk, to connect to think of strategies where your selflessness can actually meet needs and further the gospel's progress for the glory of God.